This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, pretty wide slate of topics. First, uh, tragic helicopter accident, Olivier Dassault. Uh, has passed away. We'll talk a little bit about his legacy, obviously a, a huge uh, aviation family. Um, 777 engines, that big, uh, crazy failure on a recent flight, a United, uh, United Airlines flight. They've got some information about what that might be, what, uh, you know, some metal fatigue. NASA's X-57 Maxwell Electric uh, is moving along and through the prototype stage. NetJets has bought 20 um, supersonic jets from Arion. So that pledge, that's a pretty big order. Uh, in our engineering segment, we'll talk about liquid piston, their rotary engine, which is really interesting, 10 times the power, 30% more efficient. And lastly, in our EVTOL segment, we'll talk about hit, uh, Kitty Hawk and some potential um, healthcare uses, Rolls-Royce, and Joby News. So, Alan, let's start with Dassault. So, obviously, this is a, you know, a generational um, family. I mean, and helicopters continue to claim the lives of, you know, some pretty prominent people. And you've been pretty outspoken about helicopters in general. Um, I mean, what's your what's your take on the situation? Obviously, a tragedy. It's definitely a tr- another tragedy. A helicopter accidents seem to be a little more catastrophic in a sense just because they don't always we don't have any way to really fly once you have mechanical problems you're in trouble now there hasn't been a lot of information come out about the accident as much as it's just been announced and the the so family is a very famous french family because they're the originators of the Dassault aircraft uh, line so olivier's fa- grandfather started the that aircraft business way back when and the Dassault. uh Aircraft business is one of the sort of the premier businesses, aircraft businesses on the planet. They make a beautiful set of aircraft. I mean, there's no other way to describe a Dassault aircraft, but it's just a beautiful aircraft. Everything about it is uh, is smooth, unique, aerodynamic, very well thought out. It's like a piece of art. <laughs> so if you're if you're flying it at a Dassault, you're you're you kind of set yourself apart a little bit, and you know that that company has, has grown and shifted over time. Obviously, they're in the military business for a long time and then on the civilian side with their jets. And the Dassault family has done very well off that aircraft company. But Olivier was also in, involved in the in French politics. Um, so there's that unique tie. And I think Dassault plays that one of those unique roles in terms of a French company as being as large as it is and as as much um, revenue it has generated over a time where they've been able to essentially remain separate from the French government, but the French government is involved. So the Dassault family sort of crossed that line between business and politics and being able to sort of walk that line because at times I think Dassault was, when there was at least some implications that Dassault was going to be completely taken over by the French government. So, uh, you know, the loss of that, those, those family members is a big, big loss to the French community, I think in, in general. So our, our thoughts and condolences go out to the family. Uh, but the Dassault legacy lives on and it will continue to live on because they make great products. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's scary when you start to obviously everything, you know, 
the news news cycle today, like anything can be reported, right? So maybe there were a lot more helicopter accidents back in the day that weren't, you know, it wasn't as public as it is today, but with Kobe Bryant and now, you know, Mr. Dassault, it just seems like, man, there it's a, you're almost rolling the dice, taking a helicopter ride. And that's what I know you've talked about with EVTOLs that having a lot of rotors and a lot more redundancy is a really good thing for the safety of, of helicopter travel. It is, it is. And it will be a lot safer once we can get to that. Something that actually works in the EVTOL market, but you know, helicopters have done a lot of, there's been a lot of changes to helicopter design over the years where more safety systems have been installed and more monitoring systems have been installed. And the, the maintenance has gotten so much better over the last 20, 30 years on helicopters. So the reliability has gone up, but you know, the fundamentals of it are you got a rotating wing out there. And if it stops rotating, bad stuff happens now. Um, you know, we hear, need to hear more from the French investigators on what they, what was the cause of the accident. Because the, the Kobe Bryant one was they essentially flew into the side of a hill, um, which is pilot error. And a lot of a lot of accidents today are still pilot error, not mechanical failure. Yeah. Well, and, and speaking of redundancy, the Boeing seven seventy seven, um, which you know made national and world news uh, a couple weeks ago, um, and that sh- I mean that just showed the power of redundancy. I mean, you know, there's a burning, flaming, <laughs> destroyed engine. And the plane continued on just fine and landed safely, which was pretty amazing. But it sounds like um, they're confirming that metal fatigue was the main factor here. Yeah, those those uh, inlet fan blades are made out of metal and they are inspected. And there's a schedule to inspect them. I think it was around 9,000 cycles, which is takeoffs and landings. Uh, and in that particular set of fan blades was at around 6,000 cycles, if I remember correctly. So they had a long time. 6,500 is the next inspection cycle, but this one was at 2,979. So yeah, yeah, about halfway there. Uh, yeah, so right. So it had a long way to go before it got to the next inspection cycle. So uh, what will typically happen in these situations that the, they'll take the, the remaining pieces that they can find them and do metallurgy on them to see if there's something unique about the metallurgy uh, did it have the right mixture of metals? Is it was it something about the heat treatment? Is it has it aged over time? You need some unique way. Was there some damage that was not detected on those blades earlier? So they'll go back and look at all the flight logs to see if it had some you know some weird thing happen. Somebody bump into it. Somebody there's a lot of different ways you can damage and fatigue metal. Uh, so they're going to be doing a lot a lot of of work on the engineering side for the next year it's taken probably a year to really get down to the heart of the matter what really caused it and how it cycles out because the the question isn't what happened to that particular engine is is what are you gonna do about all the engines that are continuing to fly right now do you need to inspect them every thousand cycles every two thousand cycles there's going to be some change made there obviously at least that's the indication right now they're going to make some sort of change on the inspection cycle the question is is what and what are you gonna, what's the faa going to accept so there, there's a a lot, of, a lot, a lot of work at Pratt & Whitney right now. A lot of work at Pratt & Whitney. So speaking of multi-rotor aircraft, the NASA X-57, um, which is a electric plane, is getting closer to liftoff. It's uh, now into high voltage functional ground testing. So Alan, what does that mean? How far along in the stages is that? So they have a multi-stage program to evaluate electric aircraft. And the first stage is basically taking technum aircraft, take off its its gasoline or, or aviation-powered 
engines, aviation fuel-powered engines, and put on electric engines and go out and demonstrate that they can fly the aircraft with electric engines, get some get some numbers on the electric engine performance. And then there's a couple more stages after that where they move the engines out, the electric engines out to the wingtips. And then I think the final stage is they add a bunch of engines, electric engines, electric motors onto the wingspan. So there's there's like three stages of development there. And each one of those stages is going to take several months or years to do because all the mods have to make to the aircraft. So it, it's, a, it's you know, NASA is a very important uh, engineering leadership group in terms of driving the industry towards the next generation of aircraft. The problem right now with X-57 is it is behind. Uh, you know, the, the Jobies of the world are going to be up and flying aircraft that NASA will be three years behind, four years behind. So Joby will probably be done while the X-57 is still kicking around. That's a problem um, because NASA should have been leading that. And it's, it's difficult because NASA doesn't make aircraft, right? So they're, they're having to justify the expense of doing this exercise, the stages, the safety aspects. There's a lot of infrastructure there. And a company like Joby can just go, we're going to throw a billion dollars at it and, and go. And NASA can't do that. And that's where that disruptive company aspect comes into this is that NASA is going to be following behind them. And it's not necessarily a bad thing because NASA is going to be providing data for the industry. But, you know, the Jobies of the world will already be done. And they will already be done and flying, hopefully. Well, and another interesting aircraft, so the Ariane AS2, which is supersonic business jet, um, NetJets has just uh, created a purchase order for 20 of them. And they're $120 million price tag each. So, you know, $2.4 billion uh, purchase order. And it says uh, Arion has its uh, a backlog of more than $10 billion in orders, according to this article from Rob Report. So pretty interesting that NetJets is, you know, which is the largest, they have the largest uh, business jet uh, fleet, and they're a Berks- Berkshire Hathaway-owned company. So it sounds like uh, they're making a pretty big bet on supersonic. I mean, where do you fall on supersonic? It's going to be a very fascinating uh, policy discussion on whether supersonic is going to be allowed or not. I, I think that hurdle still remains. I know the FAA is is will and NASA are willing to uh, put down the engineering to make quieter sonic booms and try to get the policy changed uh, in the United States and then obviously in the world. It has to be in the world. So the the, the question is. Are they going to be able to get the policies changed where you can fly these supersonics and actually, quote, unquote, break the sonic barrier over land? Or is it going to have to always do it over water like the Concorde did? And the Concorde model sort of failed doing that. Um, it, I, I always wonder when, when you hear about aircraft contracts and aircraft sales, there's a ton of contingencies in those contracts. You know, if they don't hit certain milestones... NetJets, everybody else will just back right out, or they'll will, they'll ask for a price decrease in the in the in the aircraft model uh, to to compensate for the loss of revenue that they would have had if the aircraft had been certified by X date. Those those things play into the valuation of a company heavily, heavily, heavily. Uh, but those those contracts are never fully disclosed. But just think about writing a check for a, a billion dollars, right? You're going to have a lot of contingencies if if this aircraft isn't delivered on time and it meets its performance numbers and all those things. So uh, always take these aircraft contracts and these theoretical backlogs as um, nice to know, but 
until you see real progress and an aircraft coming down the production line and they start hitting their flight test goals and start meeting their performance numbers, it's sort of meaningless. So let's move on to our engineering segment here. We're today we're going to talk about liquid piston, which is seems really really interesting. Um, so the liquid piston engines, uh, they are a rotary engine. They're not the Henkel engine, and they uh, I think they do a great job on their website, just explaining and showing their technology. I mean, with a lot of aerospace companies, a lot of times it's it's kind of theoretical, and you don't necessarily get a really good dive into what makes their technology different, especially in like the EVTOL space, right? There's a lot of you know, here's a lot of prototypes, and but they don't really give you the nuts and bolts. But with Liquid Piston, they're very forthcoming about this is what our engine does. You can see it, um, you know, still in in motion, all sorts of stuff, which I found really interesting. But you know, the Henkel engine is a you know a triangular shaped um, you know piston and a cylindrical or an oval shaped um, Alan, what's the cylinder? Uh, <laughs> sort of, yeah. Yeah, and then with the uh, liquid piston engine, it's it's sort of the opposite, where the rotor is cylindrical and the piston and the or the rotor is the piston is 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 like a potato shape, yeah, and the cylinder is more of a round uh, or a, more of a, a rotary shape. So really interesting, and I think so. The big news here is that liquid piston has won an Air Force contract um, to kind of say, hey, what are you know? We know these. EVTOLs have a battery limitation, right? Where there's a major shortcoming in energy density. So what other types of engines and propulsion systems can work to fill this gap if, if battery power isn't going to be realistic to fuel these flights um, in the near future? So Liquid Pistons won a contract from the Air Force to develop um, you know, more of these engines uh, to fit that need. So Alan, what do you, what, how do you feel about this uh, this rotary engine technology? It looks pretty interesting to me. It does look really interesting, and they, ha- they, you're right, they have done a great uh, job on their website describing the technology and and giving you videos and things to look at about how it works. The technology is very interesting because I think, like the Chevy Volt, uh, the first generation of these electric aircraft are going to have to have some sort of redundancy system, uh, fuel-based system, where they have a little engine. Uh, like liquid piston engine, creating power to just basically backfill the the power that's used during flight, uh, so they can either one extend the range or provide the necessary reserves in case they get into a, a situation where they can't get out of. You know that, that happens all the time. You fly into bad weather and you turn around and go back. Th- those those kind of those kind of unexpected uh, alterations of your flight plan sometimes require that you carry more fuel and which is what a lot of aircraft do right now but on a, an electric aircraft battery powered aircraft you just limited space for batteries and batteries are heavy and all all the things that go with it how do you how do you design the electrical system to meet all the faa requirements well one way to do it is to put a basically a motor backup a, a generator backup into the aircraft and have a small fuel tank there just to do that and the liquid piston design is really interesting because it's pretty compact and yet it delivers a decent amount of electrical power out of it so it would seem like it'd be a really good fit for the electrical eVTOL market um, that, that that would make a lot of sense to me now and particularly since other uh, standard uh, jet engine manufacturers are playing around in the electrical space you got to wonder if someone like liquid piston is not going to get acquired by a pratt and whitney or rolls royce or somebody to 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 take that technology and then to you know manufacture it on a large scale you can you can imagine dan if, if you're trying to like any engine manufacturer if you have to create build thousands of these engines 
a year, which is what we're talking about, the amount of, of, of human resources and facility and equipment and all that it's going to take, it's going to take a huge investment. And there's a, there's a limited number of companies in the world that can really do that efficiently, unless you get an influx of like investor money to do it, but you're still starting from ground zero. So that even though the technology is cool, don't you think they're going to need somebody else to help them bring it to reality? You have to partner somebody? Maybe, yeah. Well, and it just seems like a big task in general. So their X engine, which is their next generation rotary diesel, which is the one here in question, um, you know, the the Air Force wants to see if they can help them get that out there and, and you know, provide that propulsion through a hybrid electric system. So, so yeah, I mean, it, but like you said, it, there's a, a, a huge combination of challenges and this seems like a really big task to get these aircraft to market. So... Yeah, but the X engine, 30% more fuel efficient than a diesel engine with five to 10 times smaller and lighter size. So that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Right. It is, it is amazing. And it's surprising you haven't seen the technology being implemented somewhere else right now, but it must be the manufacturing cost to, to build the engine must be higher. It is a little bit complex in the way it's, it's built, but someone like Pratt & Whitney or Rolls-Royce or GE does that every day. So I think there's a good fit there somewhere. So let's shift into our, our final segment about EVTOLs today. So first, uh, Kitty Hawk, which has their heavy side aircraft, um, they're looking to partner with Falk, which is a Denmark-based emergency services and healthcare company um, in this article by EVTOL.com. And I think this makes a lot of sense. I mean, we've talked about that everyone wants to do these, you know, you know, hop over to work, taking an EVTOL, right? That's like the commuter thing. But the fact that you could use this as an ambulance or to provide other emergency services, maybe to, you know, to transport an organ that needs, a, you know, a hospital needs an organ, you know, a couple hundred miles away or whatever. That seems to make a lot of sense where this is in the commercial space first before being in this commuter space. Um, and so Falk says they hope to introduce the heavy side in Denmark first and then uh, move to the U.S. after that. Um, I mean, how do you how do you feel about this development? I think it's a good choice. Uh, Helicopters that service the hospitals and emergency services are used fairly regularly every day. You know, they're kind of workhorse helicopters right now. That's what does that does that job Uh, to bring in something electric does have it probably has its advantages in terms of um, speed. You know, uh, top cruise speed is probably going to be higher on electric, only some of these electric aircraft and, uh, you know, efficiency. It, it does it does lend itself to that particular market and that's a little more of a difficult market in a sense of in the commercial in the commuter world your flight may be delayed by five minutes as the aircraft re- recharging you really can't do that on an emergency services helicopter when they have an emergency that you have to be able to go and deliver the service right then so that that puts another level of complexity on it of we got to be able to quick turn these things back around and get them back into service again. How do you manage that? Because in an existing helicopter, you put some fuel in it and you go. Uh, so, you know, that's a, I, I think it's taking a little more of a step up in terms of the risk from a company standpoint because the, the aircraft really has to deliver. It can't be down with service issues. It can't be down because it needs to be charged. It has to be available essentially 24-7. So that adds more engineering task task to do in terms of his performance 
it's an interesting take. I think it's a good marketplace for them. Uh, but on the engineering side, you have a little more work to do, I think. For sure. Well, speaking of the engineering side, so Rolls-Royce is going to be um, partnering with uh, Vertical Aerospace and providing their electrical power system in the VAX4 EVTOL, which is a pretty interesting commercial deal um, for these two companies. And you think this is a pretty good a pretty good thing for vertical aerospace because Rolls-Royce brings a lot of expertise to this space. They do. They're bringing engineers, like over 100 engineers going to be working on this project. And Rolls-Royce, much like GE, much like Pratt & Whitney, know the, the, the propulsion industry. And they have engineers that know how to, to certify propulsion systems. So you're bringing in the real experts. Now, they don't have a lot of experience in electric motors, so to speak, because it's a relatively new marketplace for them. But they know all the regulations, they know all the intricacies, they know what, what testing is required to go off and certify uh, an, an engine, so to speak, in this case, a motor. Uh, and the power distribution system comes along with it. So instead of vertical aerospace devoting a lot of resources to develop the power distribution and propulsion system, you're handing it off to someone in some, a company that is world experts in that. So you can take that off your plate of things to go do you can focus on designing the aircraft, all the avionics, all the, the all the other tests you have to go do to cert, flight tests you have to go do to certify an aircraft, and re, and rely on a known, proven expert company and their engineers to, to, to you kind of have working with you directly to provide the probably the most critical piece, which is the propulsion system. So it de-risks in a sense, it de-risks the program from vertical aerospace's standpoint, and from their investor standpoint, it adds a lot of confidence to the chances that they're going to be able to certify it. That's a huge development. If if I'm if I'm not an investor in this space and Dan you're not an investor in this space either. But when when I see a company a known proven company kind of walk into us walk into that situation, it adds a lot of confidence. It should add confidence for investors like hey, this this is going to happen, right? Rolls-Royce is not going to uh, most likely not going to stumble and fall here. They're going to be, they're going to know where those trap doors lie and they're going to be able to navigate around them through the certification program and give vertical aerospace uh, essentially a push ahead of other companies that don't have that resource. So good move. I think it's a really good move. It's, it's very fascinating that Rolls-Royce is driving so hard in the electrical space because they've been such a leader in the, in the aviation fuel powered jet engine space forever that they're already transitioning over. They see uh, a potential marketplace and they're trying to capture it before some other, like a GE or a Pratt & Whitney try to get in that space. Rolls-Royce has been driving there pretty hard the last couple of years. So uh, it's that, this whole arrangement makes sense to me. It makes a lot of sense. Well, and there's been a lot of these partnerships just of late in general, right? I mean, it seems like and of course, I'm sure all the CEOs of all these companies are like, hey, this company in our industry partnered with them. Maybe we should start exploring some of these partnerships. You know, I think that's a natural thing. One person takes the plunge and says, hey, we're going to, you know, move into this sector. Other companies start to think about, well, why are they doing that? Does that make sense for us? Do we need to be competitive there? How long can we wait? Are we going to really lose, you know, and have a lot of ground to catch up if we wait? Or should we just jump in now and see what happens? And so it seems like, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of these partnerships recently. Like you said, people coming in, whether it's avionics or motors or electrical systems, whatever, like, hey, let us let us help. We've been doing this for a long time. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Just from a company standpoint, this this is my take on how to build an EV tall. 
you connect with a propulsion power provider, batteries, electrical distribution system, motors, get that resolved. Just like you're building a standard conventional aircraft, you're gonna hire Pratt and Whitney to make the engine for it or GE to make the engine for it. So you're not gonna worry about that part of it. So you find somebody who can do that part. On the avionics side, your choice is probably Garmin. For a lot of reasons, uh, one cost, two technology, three, the autonomous flight piece have been doing with like Cirrus, uh, where they have the autonomous land feature where you just push a button and the aircraft lands itself. So they already have that sort of autonomous stuff going on in Garmin. You have to know that Garmin could make your aircraft, if the FAA would allow it, if Garmin could make your aircraft autonomous, which is where they all want to go anyway. So, you know, hooking up with a Rolls Royce, hooking up with a Garmin, uh, in terms of flight controls, there's a couple of key companies that you could connect with that could do flight controls, you know, actuators, that kind of thing. Connect with them. If you can put those pieces together under under a one umbrella, where the aircraft company is developing the basically the, the flight characteristics of the aircraft, the shape, the passengers seats and then the comfort areas and the touch screens and whatever else is going to go on because there's a lot of work to do there uh let the aircraft company develop the aircraft let the experts in the sub components but still critical pieces let them develop those components for you as a quote-unquote partnership and now it's not really a partnership but because they don't ever seem to lose any money on the on the propulsion side but that's your fastest way to certification to de-risk it, because if you have investors of a billion plus dollars into this thing, you need to de-risk it. You need to have some means of de-risking it, and that's how you would do it today. That's how a, a standard aircraft would do it today. If when you watch these companies develop new aircraft, that's kind of what they want to do, because it just takes pressure off. Even Boeing does it, right? So Boeing will try to de-risk a program by bringing in large suppliers to do certain sections of the aircraft to hopefully de-risk the program and. and um, get it out the door so you can get certified. It's a, it's a huge deal to do it. So last on our, our docket today is Joby Aviation. So they're going public at a $6.6 billion uh, valuation through a SPAC. And, you know, they revealed a new YouTube video about two weeks ago showing, you know, their, uh, their aircraft in flight. But it was only, you know, a couple minute video, right? So Alan, where do you fall? You have a lot of uh, strong takes on Joby in the sector in general, but I mean, it seems like Joby is one of the leaders, obviously. They've got some great technology, but yet to see flights that are near what they're claiming that they'll do in service, right? That 30-minute magic window. And obviously, you said there's going to need to be maybe 45 minutes of total flight time in reserve, right? Because obviously you can't be maxed out and at risk of, of, of crashing if you're, you know, have to turn back or whatever. So um, I don't know, what what's your take on the latest with, with, with Joby? I think Joby's making a lot of right decisions uh, at the moment uh, in terms of the way they're partnering, the way they're raising funds, because I think they have a realistic uh, assessment of what it's going to take to produce and deliver aircraft and operate the aircraft. So they're, they're raising money like they know what the final cost is and they're realistic about it, which is a lot of times the, the hardest part for an aircraft company CEO to to grasp is it's going to take a lot more money than you think that it's going to take. And, and Joby seems to be around the number I think it, they, they should be. But the the, the the real driver, I think, and I again, I, I go back to we need to have some... 
uh, I, and I'm not an investor in this space and nor I'll be an investor in this space, but I think to sh prove the technology, you need to have a 30 minute flight with sim either simulated loads, uh, passenger loading in it, or people, passengers, flight test engineers, and a couple of, of, of dummies in the back to, to, to show that the aircraft does what you say it can do. And Ehang recently did that with um, an empty aircraft where they flew it and it basically put a couple of cameras in it and flew it across a, a lake for about 15 minutes so you can see all the video from takeoff to landing it's, it's about 15 17 minutes if i remember correctly so it's like a full length flight it's not 30 minutes which i think 30 minutes is that really criteria where you need to get to but it does show you what needs to be done in, in terms of because they've had an investor confidence issue recently, and so to, to to sort of get the investors back locked in, they've they've shown that their aircraft can do what they're saying it can do, on some level, even that was empty at the time. Uh, Joby's going to be in the same boat. All of the aircraft eVTOL companies can be in the same boat. Beta and Heavy Side and all these Whisk are all going to be in the same boat, which is that until until you show that you can do the real flight. Yeah, the product's not really there. Right. It doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean on the engineering drawing board that the the numbers don't show that they can do it. They must be having some investor conversations about uh can this aircraft do this? Here's the calculations, here's the aerodynamic analysis, here's all the uh, basically a, a, a preliminary design review type presentation which be showing that they can do it or a critical design review a CDR which shows that they can do all these all these little uh pieces all connect together and they can deliver what they say they're going to deliver. The, the question is from the public standpoint, you haven't seen it. And if you're trying to raise money through a SPAC, which is what they're doing, and you've got connections with Toyota and now former Uber Elevate, and you have all these pieces coming together, you still haven't shown how it's going to work <laughs> and that it can do what it says it's going to do. I, that's a huge hurdle to get over. And I, Dan, do you think you're going to see, this is 2021, so do you think we're going to see this year somebody do that 30-minute flight? Does it feel like that? Are we close? It doesn't It doesn't feel like that. And it is weird in the sense of all these different startups, because I can't think of another startup that has a product like that where, you know, like you think of like a Dropbox, like, okay, Dropbox, but it's never actually stored a thing in the cloud. You know what I mean? Like Dropbox from the beginning was like, this needs to do, do cloud storage. And so even with Tesla, like they had their first prototype cars, you know, years ago. And it, I don't know, like it was clear it could do what it needed to do. But this is the very, like you said, it's very unproven. It has to be able to go 45 minutes with reserve to to have that viable model, that, that business model. And so it really is a fascinating thing where it seems fundamentally different than all these other startups where it's like, well, if this doesn't, if it doesn't meet that distance, is it what happens? Yeah, like is all this money gone? Is there a marketplace, right? Because you, I, Daniel, I think you nailed it. That a lot of the presentations we've seen on eVTOLs have to do with specific locations in the in the United States where this these particular aircraft can be utilized: San Francisco, Houston, and. Uh, Maybe Chicago, definitely New York. New York's the number one that gets thrown out a lot. So if if your time if your time duration goes down in terms of the length of flight go down, what does that do to revenue streams? So say you say you guaranteed you can this aircraft's going to fly thirty minutes with the FAA mandated reserve, and it's now twenty five. What does that do to your profitability? 
don't know, right? It, it, it may it, if you, if it doesn't go thirty minutes, uh, does it? Do you not make that flight? Right? So if you're going from I don't even know the distances. If you're going from Manhattan to LaGuardia, I don't even know what that distance is. But if you're just short of that, essentially that market gets wiped away because you can't make it. What do you do? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting thing. It's not like a car. You just like get out. You walk the last mile. Like if you can't make it to that airport, you just can't make it at all. That's that is a really interesting point. Yeah, there's no there's no night getting ninety percent of the way there. You've got to you've got to get there. That's right, and, and no one's going to buy the aircraft if you can't show that you can do those routes. So that that distance is really super critical in the profitability of these companies. But we just haven't seen any demonstration of it yet. And I always go back to the Wright brothers <laughs> flying around a. The farm fields of Ohio, and that's what they did. They flew around the farm fields of Ohio to demonstrate they could stay in the air a long time. And we, we, we still need that sort of validation. If they, if the Wright brothers were doing it back in 1908 or whenever that was, which is probably 1908, 1909, then we're in 2021. We should be able to show that because the human humans haven't changed all that much. We need to see it to believe it. So sort of the Missouri Show Me State thing. We need to be able to see it to believe it and. Right now, we haven't seen it from anybody. Not, not it's not a Joby specific thing. We haven't seen it from any eVTOL maker that they can do this. Even Enhang hasn't shown they can do it. So, what are we going to do? You know, at what point are we going to see it? And I, I kind of feel like you, Dan. I'm not sure we're going to see it in 2021. I don't know if we're going to see it this year. Kind of doubt it. But it would be great if they. I could be wrong, but it'd be great if we did. But it doesn't feel like it today. This being. March 2021. I don't think we're going to run out of time to get that done this year. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening. And please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.